Hello and welcome to the Carbon Removal Newsroom. I'm Alexandra Guerra and I'm here with Nori podcast producer extraordinaire Ross Kenyon. And our guest today is Duncan McLaren from Lancaster University. He's a research fellow and professor in practice. And he and team wrote a really amazing paper that came across the web first on our desk. And as soon as I saw it on Slack, immediately we all knew and agreed we had to have Duncan on to talk about this paper that was published in Frontiers in Climate called Beyond Net Zero, A Case for Separate Targets for Emissions Reduction and the Negative Emissions. Hiya, Duncan. Hi, Alexandra. Great to be with you. So glad to have you here. Ross, you there with us? Yeah, I'm here. I like the hiya. We're just trying to be real American for you, Duncan, put you in your place a little bit. <laughs> exactly. All right. So I briefly explained the topic of this paper by just simply reading the very descriptive title. Duncan, tell us a little bit about this paper and what inspired you and your team to write this. Well, our work at Lancaster is part of a UK-wide program on carbon removal. And the whole program really is about how do we ensure that we can deliver the carbon removal that, that is needed in the future without it disrupting progress to cut emissions. That That's our research topic. We've been working on this for a couple of years. We run nine deliberative workshops five of them in, in the UK, four of them actually using video conferencing technology within international groups to explore what people thought could be or what problems people could see coming up. And then at the end of each of these meetings, we talked a little about what uh, policy options there were. And one of the things that came up time and time again in these meetings was the idea of separation, of making it much, much clearer when we were aiming to remove carbon from the atmosphere, as opposed to just trying to cut emissions that stop carbon going into the atmosphere. So let's elaborate there and give some context for those who are not totally familiar with the policy space or even like the private sector when they say they want to be net zero. What do you mean separation? What are we separating and, and why hasn't it been separated? Perhaps the easiest way to explain it is to look at what has happened when climate modelers look at the future and they say, oh, no. We're, we're running out of our carbon budget. Either we need to or we need to cut emissions dramatically, but there might still be too much carbon in the atmosphere. We then need to remove some carbon from the atmosphere. And when they run these models and they put carbon removal technologies in, in coming in in the future, what happens is that the models, because they're designed to optimize costs, they slow down emissions removal in the short term and substitute it with what are still largely imaginary technologies for drawing carbon out of the air towards the end of the century. And the worst thing was when the first round of modeling was done with all of these, they drew these lovely curves that showed emissions coming down. And then around about 2050, so 30 years out, the line went negative and it looked like 
then we were starting to do or would be starting to do in 2050 some carbon removal. But actually, all the time between now and then, part of bending down that curve was a hidden amount of carbon removal. So the picture the policymakers got was that, oh, we can put off decisions about this until 2040, that there wasn't an immediate need to start investing in carbon removal. But also, at the same time, the picture told them that the speed of emissions reduction could be slower than they thought. Now, what we ask then is, what happens then if the imaginaries of carbon removal aren't practical? And in the models, that was normally this idea of bioenergy with carbon capture and storage. So you'd, you'd produce electricity or heat by using biomass, and you capture the carbon off the back end. What we found, or what other researchers had already found, was that the amount of BEX, this, this technology in the models, was so great that it would probably be impossible to deliver. So the models, by merging together emissions reduction and carbon removal, had led us into a place where we were relying on an imaginary technology that almost certainly couldn't be delivered. That we thought was a, was a very bad place. So I'm going to ask a couple clarifying questions, if I may, because I think I'm a little bit, I'm hearing two things that at first you, you started by explaining that the models are designed for cost effectiveness and efficiency. And in the short term, they slow down carbon removals. But then by showing, you know, okay, carbon removals in the outcomes that it's not included. And then only after 2050 do we get to negative emissions. But then you're also saying that there are hidden carbon removals in that model that aren't even described. And we're, are we confusing through those models? Carbon? Are we being told that this is carbon reductions when really part of that is carbon removal? So can you clarify it, that for me? Yeah. In the way that these models were portrayed, the, the graphs, the charts we see, it was hard to see that the amount of negative emissions was already growing from 2025 or 2030 because the net line hadn't crossed zero. So it was just hidden in a, in a general decline. So that's one thing that was going on. That has been improved. There's a lot better graphs that the modelers produce these days that show the, uh, the absolute negative emissions as well as the net negative emissions. But the models were also saying that, oh yeah, we, we've got these technologies in 2070, 2080, 2090, um, discounted at 3 or 5% a year, they appear to cost nothing. So in a cost optimizing model, of course, the model says do more of this and less of the most expensive things. And the most expensive things were by definition or are by definition in, in a discounting model, the things we would do now or tomorrow. So the model swapped immediate emissions reductions for distant future carbon removal. Mm. All right. And so let, let's go back a little bit. When it comes to the need to separate these right now, how are they treated the same? Is it because we are incentivizing people um, the same way to reduce their emissions as we are to, let's say, draw down CO2 and sequester it? No, in, in a sense, I'd say, sadly, we're not. Well, we're not really incentivizing people to do either adequately. But 
the way that we're beginning to treat them the same is in the policy framework. So in the UK, for example, we've just adopted this net zero target. We say, yeah, we're going to have emissions at net zero by 2050. Well, does that mean that we're going to cut our emissions by, say, 90% and then have negative emissions running at the equivalent of 10% to bring us to a net zero? Or does it mean we're going to cut our emissions by 60% and then have 40% worth of, of negative emissions? Unless it's very clear that both of those terms are are made specific, how much we're going to cut emissions and then how much negative emissions we have, it's rather vague and we think potentially misleading. And it gets it gets almost I mean the, the UK has probably done a fairly good job. The climate change committee that we have has published material that indicates the absolute amounts that it thinks these things are going to contribute. But we haven't as yet said, okay, the policy measures we use to encourage them are going to be appropriate to do that. And what again worries us is that much of the carbon removal is very expensive right now. What carbon removal needs is sort of quite significant upfront investments to get it up and running, probably rather more than we need to be spending per tonne of carbon on renewable energy, for instance. And what we found in the past with emissions reduction is that different technologies at different stages of development need targeted support and different levels of support. And there's there's a little bit too much confidence that just, oh, let's push up the price of carbon and that alone will be enough to deliver what we need. We think by having these separate targets, it becomes a lot clearer how much investment different forms of carbon removal need to get them going to deliver the levels that we need by 2050 or, or 2070. And of course, delivering net zero is is all well and good, but it is still very likely that there'll be still too much carbon in the atmosphere and that what we need is a period of, of net negative of and at least some countries the rich countries particularly and some sectors will have to go net negative not just reach net zero precisely so and what your point here is if i'm going to backtrack a little bit is if we need to not just like well yes let's meet net zero goals but we need more than that we need to be removing more than we are emitting and in order to do that we need to have more effective cost effective and impactful carbon removal technologies in play. And in order to do that, we need to be able to invest in them, meaning we need to be able to understand how do they play right now in the short term, in the long term, and how much should we be spending in investing on developing those technologies from a policy level and a private sector. Exactly. exactly. All of that. And one additional thing, which is as soon as we start doing that, of course, some actors will go, oh, great. I don't need to cut my emissions now. I can oh, grab God. it back out of the atmosphere in 50 years' time. Oh, buddy. And we need, a, we need to be able to guard against that too. Which Absolutely. Again, 
is why it's good to have the, the targets separate and clear, because it means that if people start slacking off on mitigation, we see, we know, we can respond to that. It's not hidden away in this sort of messy, oh, is it mitigation we're relying on to do that? Or is it carbon removal we're relying on to do that? We know which bit's going wrong if we have separate targets. Absolutely. And it's not it's not mutually exclusive environment where we're like, okay, we're just going to be re- reduce our way out of the bag because we, we just don't have the technology and resources right now to go completely net zero without some form of carbon removal to make up, let's say in that scenario you mentioned, that 10% after we reduced 90%. I mean, that's actually a really good scenario. So it's to be very clear, I think what you're saying, and I, and if this is what you're saying, we totally agree that reductions are important and so are removals, but we have to recognize that they're two different things to get us to the same goal and understanding how to use them will allow us to better hit those targets. So, for example, a screwdriver and a hammer are both useful to build a house, but not in every case will I use a screwdriver. I technically could hammer and a nail with it, but it, it just that's not the purpose. So understand the difference between what your screwdriver is doing for you and what the hammer is doing for you and how to use them appropriately. I think that's a, that's a really helpful analogy. Um, the other way we try and talk about it is perhaps a little bit counterintuitive because one might think that a a ton of carbon saved by abating emissions today is exactly the same as a ton of carbon that we can pull out of the atmosphere tomorrow, that the climate doesn't care where that carbon came from. We, We hear that quite often. And in one sense, that's true. But in another sense, it's it's a myth. Because if we, for instance, if we abate carbon today, that carbon can't leak out in 10 years' time if the geological store stops working or the forest burns down that the carbon removed has been stored in. So there's a risk associated with carbon storage that isn't associated with the abatement of, of CO2. And then, as I was saying earlier, some of these technologies are still quite imaginary. We we think we know how bioenergy with CCS will work. We think we know how even direct air capture will work, but we don't know for sure that they're going to work the way we expect. And we particularly don't know how much of that carbon will be taken by other interests and used in a in what's called carbon utilization. Because from our point of view, if you're removing carbon, that's only half the job. Storing it away permanently is the other half of the job. So if a company removes carbon from the air, but then sells it to make synthetic fuel, or even sells it to go into an oil well in enhanced oil recovery that pumps out more oil, both of those mean that it's only effectively a temporary measure. It's not actually storing that carbon away in the long term. So all those sort of problems mean that a ton of carbon simply captured from the air shouldn't be treated as exactly the same as a ton of carbon that is abated, that is never emitted. Sure. I agree. But and I'm going to push back a little bit here because while I agree that we should be um, recognizing that 
if I've not emitted, then that's, that's easier. It's, it's easier for me to not have to clean up a mess if I didn't do it in the first place. But because we've already emitted so much excess CO2 in the atmosphere, we need to be able, like you said earlier, remove more than we're totally emitting. And yes, these technologies that you're talking about are still in development and some of them more mature than others. We're pretty confident in the ability of, let's say, trees to store CO2 until, let's say, a fire comes and burns down that forest. And so you need to have some complex mechanisms in a way to ensure that you are paying for both, the, or you are providing both the carbon removal and the long-term storage. So I'm going to go to a yep. quote in your uh, paper that I highlighted. And you say, the formal separation of negative emissions also require redesign of most offsetting and carbon trading systems. Such systems aim to reduce economic costs to take carbon out of the system where it is cheapest to do so in the current market. And then a little later you say, a separate market for negative emissions trading might be considered instead of treating, of having a carbon market that sells both reductions and negative emissions. Can you expand on why you started talking about this in your paper? Well, in a sense, it, it follows very much from what I was just saying, that that there are such uncertainties attached to removals that we don't think it's a wise idea to trade them in, in existing markets, especially when you look at something like the, the European emissions trading scheme, which is designed in such a way that if you simply added carbon removals into it, what you would get by definition would be less mitigation because the market has a cap. And unless you tighten the cap at the same time, then you would have this problem. You, you would actually be making it easier for people to not mitigate by bringing removals in that's assuming that the removals were, were trading at a price that was competitive on the market. It may be that they never did, but uh, in that case, they're not getting any financial incentive to improve the removal technology. Yeah. So we're very skeptical of the value of doing it this way. And perhaps one good way of illustrating this would be to say, say your market was paying I don't know, 50 pounds a ton or $50 a ton. And people doing tree planting could achieve a ton for $10. So we're giving tree planters $40 to do nothing. But people doing direct air capture need $100. $50 isn't enough for them to, to work. Wouldn't it be rather better to allocate the same amount of money in such a way that the tree planters got enough to do what they need to do and the direct air capture team got enough to deliver some direct air capture and start improving that technology. That's a really good comment, Duncan. And I want to tie it to some feedback we constantly get or questions when we're meeting with people about carbon removal and the marketplace we're trying to build. And we do want to ensure that people are paying for both carbon removal and storage and that ultimately we are achieving the outcome we want, which is a ton of CO2 is removed and stored. And so my question to you is, what would you say to our desire to have people pay for carbon removal and storage and retention separate, completely separate? We don't sell reductions. And then people say to us a lot of times, like, well, how are you ensuring that they're reducing? 
I'm like, I can't because we're providing a service for the carbon removal. Oh, well, and the pushback we get back a lot is, well, if you're just providing carbon removal, then are you providing people permission to just, you know, delay on their mitigations in the short term? And I said, no, we fully believe that you need to emit less, remove the rest. And it is our job to make sure that you have a way to confidently say you paid for carbon removal with a transparent and verifiable list of projects on our blockchain that says, yes, this was done and it's maintained and that carbon storage is maintained and you can continue to pay for that retention. Yeah, I mean, that's a really tricky one because in in part, it's about a policy question that Norrie itself can't be expected to resolve which is about this policy level separation and and the the firm policy for emissions reduction as well as supportive policy for carbon removal. In the absence of that, it's sort of a fair criticism because people may well take what you're doing and say, oh, that does allow us to do something different. In in the paper, we, we mention Heathrow Airport. Heathrow Airport is paying directly for peat bog restoration so that carbon is being accumulated in peat bogs and stored away. But they're using that to offset emissions elsewhere in their operations to claim that they have a carbon neutral airport. It's not even to offset flights, which are treated separately. It's just to offset their operational emissions. So, it would be hard, I can imagine, for, for Nori to turn away a corporate client that said, OK, we want to buy carbon removal. But it would also be really hard for you to guarantee that they, they didn't then go on making emissions. And this, to sort of reassure you that I don't think that's, it isn't something you can resolve alone or Nori can resolve alone. It's something that does require policy. But this, this I think, brings us back to the, the core motivation, which is a recognition that really cutting our emissions to next to nothing, let's say. Not, not, there may be some genuinely recalcitrant emissions that, that we can't cut to zero, but we can, we can easily push down towards that 90% emissions reduction level, probably beyond. But it takes transformations in the way the economy works. It's not a simple task. We need to transform our steel industry, our cement industry. We certainly need to transform our airline industry. Um, Perhaps our biggest worry about the practice of offsetting generally is that it could be used to slow those things down. And it takes a strong hand on the, the policy lever to make sure that it doesn't. Yeah, I've got one last question, then we should wrap up here. This is great, Duncan. And so um, maybe you can enlighten me and point me to some guides that I have not come across. But for me, it almost seems like every industry, it depends on what reductions, carbon reductions, they'll actually be able to achieve within a given time frame. Take aviation, for example. While Corsia, the carbon offsetting reduction scheme for international aviation, is a market mechanism to get airlines to be carbon neutral growth after 2020, whether it's by using uh, renewable aviation fuels or by paying for offsets. And in this one industry, in this vertical, there's a limit in the resources at any given time 
for how much renewable aviation fuel they have, right? How much is coming from a carbon renewable source? And so for me, it would be more helpful in terms of separating out. Let's first step is to recognize, yes, reductions are not the same as removals. Two, let's look at our capacity to do reductions within a given time period. What does the next five years look like? What can we reasonably achieve on a level? Maybe for aviation, it might be 20%, 30% reductions in CO2 emissions using the existing resources and capacity for renewable aviation fuels. And then paint that picture. Where does that bar go down? And then how does that bar go further down? Meaning, you know, if the y-axis is how much you're emitting in CO2, and if you're decreasing you're able to reduce the total amount of carbon you're emitting. And then the rest between where you're at and the zero axis is how much you would need to remove. That's not clear. And it sounds like that's that almost sounds like the whole picture of recognizing where this can be within a certain time frame and how much we need to be investing and doing on each part for, say, five years out, 10 years out and further. I haven't come across that. If you have, Please let me know. I'd love to look into that. <laughs> no, I, I haven't seen something like that. And I'm, <laughs> I'm going to complicate it, I'm afraid, and, and say what is problematic for me about that is that it also embodies a set of projections about demand. It embodies a set of ideas about how much we are going to want to fly how much we can see it as reasonable to fly. And those are a set of ideas that even as we say flying becomes more available to more people, flying is still horrendously inequitable. The richest handful of people, the top 10%, top 1%, take the majority of all flights. I believe it's, it's that extreme. The ability of the industry to say, oh, we can achieve carbon neutrality even with growth, is in a sense redefining what we mean by genuinely recalcitrant emissions. So I think of genuinely recalcitrant emissions as perhaps, I know, the nitrous oxide that comes off from using fertilizer to feed people, to keep us alive. I don't treat it as the carbon dioxide that comes out of the back end of an aeroplane, even though I use aeroplanes myself. Um, What is genuinely recalcitrant is something that gets redefined when people miss the separation between removals and emissions. And and that's another reason that we, we argue for this very clear separation. All right. I mean, that's fair. I was wanting you to lay out like this roadmap on what are the things we need to do next. But step one, <laughs> two, but you may, may, all fair. Let's just separate and recognize what these well, two things are. Let me chip in one thing more that okay. then may, may help you at the end. Just to say separation was the first big thing that came out of our deliberative workshops. We're working right now on analysing all the rest of the suggestions and we'll we'll be writing another paper so there'll be more more to come. Watch this space. We do have other ideas that we just need to analyse better first. Yeah. All right. So then maybe we'll have to come you have you come back on to the carbon removal newsroom and share with us what you find next on this journey. Great. I'd love to join you again. 
Thanks so much, Duncan, for joining us. Really a pleasure. I'm holding myself back because there's so much more to discuss, but hopefully we can continue the conversation again soon. Indeed. It's been great joining you. Bye-bye. Bye.